uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're looking at verses uh, 1 through 14 in Deuteronomy chapter 12. We come to a new section in the book, the list of rules and statutes running from chapter 20, uh, 12 all the way to chapter 26. Uh, let me say up front here, it would be a mistake to, uh, to read these laws as just a long list of rules and statutes. Moses is preaching. Uh, Moses is preaching uh, these laws to God's people to help them know God's will for them in a new situation. If you think about it, Israel has never been here before. They're about to enter into the promised land. They've come through 40 years of uh, wilderness wandering, and before that they were slaves in Egypt, so they need to be ready. They need to be prepared for this new situation, and that's why Moses takes uh, the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, and in a very loose fashion preaches through it with specific applications for Israel dwelling in the promised land. Uh, But as I hope we will see, in the weeks and uh, most assuredly the months to come, uh, these laws still preach. Uh, So with that in mind, let's uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, and let's hear the word of the Lord together. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days... That you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods. And destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according To all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all 
your uh, finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. One of the hardest parts of gardening is uh, preparing the soil, or so I'm told. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of experiencing, uh, experience with gardening. Our family's going to give it a shot this year, so we're taking any uh, tips that you might have. But I think we understand the basic idea that if you do not deal with weeds, that's all you're going to get. The weeds will choke other things out. And what's true of gardening is also true of worship. Before the true worship of God can flourish in our lives, the weeds of false worship and idolatry need to be ripped out. They need to be rooted out. The ground has to be prepared. The soil of our souls must be made ready by removing anything that would harden our hearts against the worship of the one true God with single, wholehearted devotion. Otherwise, true worship is choked out by the weeds of idolatry. Moses understood this. He he knew that you've got to prepare the ground if you want your garden to grow. And I think that's why his instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 12 comes in these two main parts, these two main sections. The Lord intended to plant his people in the promised land. They were to be his chosen vineyard. They were to be his his pleasant planting that was to sprout up right out of the midst of the wilderness to the praise of his glory. But before that could happen... The ground had to be prepared and the abominable practices of false worship and the idolatry of the Canaanites had to be ripped out by the roots within this sacred, holy space. And so with that in view, look at this passage in these two parts. Uh, First, destroy false places of worship. And secondly, Seek true worship in God's chosen place. I think we got to recognize here as we begin this new section in Deuteronomy that it is most certainly not an accident. As Moses begins this long section of rules and statutes that he begins with the proper worship of God. Because nothing else is more important than the true worship of God. That is, that is reflected, isn't it, in the Ten Commandments, when you think about the order, the structure of the ten words, being serve the Lord alone. Uh, not by images, but by his divine direction. Revere and honor the name of the Lord, and serve the Lord on the day that he has appointed, right, the Sabbath day. 
All of the commands are centered on the proper worship of God. And I wonder, though, as we, as we think about this, do, do we really believe that? You know, I, I think if, if we heard somebody say, you know, nothing comes before the right worship of God, we would, we would nod our heads. But if we were to put together our own list of moral rules and principles by which we seek to live, would the number one thing be true worship of the Lord, proper worship of God? Moses is teaching us that is how it ought to be for God's people because not only because of God's glory and his, his worth, but because we understand that everything else flows out of that, the proper and right worship of the Lord. So, so look with me again at verses 1 through 4 where Moses declares, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you shall live on the earth. That's an introduction that covers everything from chapter 12 to chapter 26. And then he goes into detail. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Now, you read those verses and you might think that that bit of instruction has little to no relevance to the Christian life today. Now that, now that we as God's people right, are no longer uh, organized, constituted a theocratic nation state within holy land, within sacred space like Israel was under the old covenant. So what might it mean for us to obey this command to destroy every false place of worship, or in the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the general equity of this law? All right, let's say, let's say your neighbor has a, has a shrine in their yard to, I don't know, Buddha or, or something like that. Does this, does this mean that you should, you should march over there with a sledgehammer and dash it into pieces and then just set the yard ablaze? Is that what this command means for us? No. I know asking that makes us chuckle a little bit, but, but this is actually a really important question. Not just about this particular rule that God is giving his people, but really for this whole section of Deuteronomy. How does God's revealed will in this text apply to us in a new and very different situation than Israel within the promised land? That is a really important question. Because we are mistaken if we think that God's law in the scriptures was given to us as a kind of exhaustive guide to every possible situation that we might experience or encounter. This law was given to Israel in a very specific context which is vastly different from our own. There, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between Israel's context and ours today. And so what we need is godly wisdom to know how this law applies to the church today. Now, let's be clear, we do not keep this command 
by physically destroying false places of worship. That is not how God's people are called to keep this command under the gospel. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. But, this is an important but, that does not mean that God's people can live in peaceful coexistence with false worship either. We are, we are not called to physically destroy places of false worship. But that shouldn't lead us to jump to the false conclusion that we can live in peaceful coexistence either. As Paul says, <coughs> let's, I think Paul's a great example of how this law applies to the church today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, uh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you hear what Paul says? We destroy things, Paul says. What things? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We seek to take every thought captive for Christ. Do not forget how terribly disturbed the Apostle Paul was when he witnessed the idolatry in Athens. Acts chapter 17, you remember Luke's account. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. They even had an idol to an unknown God just to cover all of their bases. But what did Paul do? He didn't take a sledgehammer and start smashing down these physical idols. Instead, he, he reasoned with people about God, the creator and sustainer of all things, and Jesus Christ, his son, risen from the dead and coming again one day to judge the world. See, Paul didn't go around dashing idols to pieces, but he certainly did mount a resistance. He did battle against the idolatry that he found around him, and he engaged in spiritual warfare with the weapons that God has provided by, by prayer and the sword of the Spirit, by proclaiming the gospel in both public and private. And thus, I think it's right to say that like the Israelites in Canaan, the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world is called to be a countercultural community of resistance that refuses to be conformed to the spirit of our age. And we ought to be provoked. We ought to be provoked like the Apostle Paul. We should be disturbed. Because it's not, only, it's not only our nation, you see. It's not only out there. But it's within the covenant community. To bring it a little closer to home, as John Calvin famously put it, we are our own idol factories, aren't we? We have our own high places that need tearing down because we cannot live in peaceful coexistence with idolatry. Now, of course, to be disturbed and to resist, we've got to know what we're up against. We have to know what we're called to resist. And after all, not every expression of idolatry is, you know, and, and place of false worship is overt and obvious as it was 
during the Old Testament times. It's not as easy to identify as a physical shrine or a temple people go to. Most of the idols that people bow down to today are far more subtle and far more seductive. For example, the idol of personal freedom and pleasure and power and comfort. I think think that perhaps the most pervasive way that the world worships today is by sacrificing almost everything on the altar of personal feelings and personal preferences. That's the way idolatry often manifests today. We sacrifice almost everything in our world today on the altar of our own personal feelings, our own personal choice, our own personal preferences, because there is no higher authority than how I feel and what I desire, and that's idolatry. That is making a God out of our own personal desire. Our culture catechizes us with a constant, unending barrage of cliches that preach this message to our hearts. Just listen to some of these slogans. I I think they'll all sound familiar to us. Have it your way. Believe in yourself. Uh, Follow your heart. One of my favorites. You do you. (laughs) Stand up for your rights. Chase your dreams. Live your truth. You can be anything you want to be. At Disney, and I'm not trying to pick on Disney, but I'm going to pick on Disney. Uh, Disney heralds this message all of the time. You could almost pick any Disney movie and find something like this in one one part of the movie. But I'm going to pick a more recent one. Most of us, I'm guessing, have seen the movie Frozen. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure a lot of us uh, have seen Frozen. And I'll bet you there's some of us who could sing word by word, Let It Go. The song Let It Go. I want you to just listen to the lyrics for a second and ask the question, okay, what is the message that is being communicated here? I'm not going to sing it for you today, okay? Um, I wouldn't sing it on a good day, but I've got a cold, so that's my excuse. Here are the words. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No, No rules, no constraints. I'm free to do as I please. Now, if we're a bit more advanced in years and we think we're we're free of that cultural catechesis, just remember it's Frank Sinatra back in the late 1960s who who sang, uh, I did it my way. I did it my way. That may may no longer be on top of the billboard charts, but it surely is the theme song of our age. I did it my way. That message is so simple and so seductive that it is hard to resist. You do not have to watch Frozen a bazillion times for it to seep into your soul. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. What I feel is true. What I desire is my truth. What I think is my reality. I, I don't think any of us fully comprehend how deep the roots of this idolatry go. 
Follow your heart, right? But what does the prophet Jeremiah say? Right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, right? Follow your heart. That's, that's terrible advice. The call to follow your heart is one of the seemingly most innocent but profoundly problematic cultural liturgies of our day. And Deuteronomy 12 is saying to us that we have to tear down that stronghold in our lives. We have to burn it to the ground. We've got to get rid of it. Dash it to pieces. And, and if I can be honest with you, I, I've, I've seen this idol alive and well within Christian circles. It often gets baptized in the language of, well, God told me to do this. Right. These are my feelings. And God would not will something contrary to my desire. So this, this must be, this must be God's will for me. And so what's true in gardening is true of worship. See, before the fruit of true worship and devotion can flourish in our lives, the weeds of idolatry have got to be taken out by the root. The ground needs to be prepared. It needs to be softened. The soil of our souls must be made ready by removing anything that would harden or, or divide our hearts from worshiping the one true God in the way that he chooses. Now that language of choice is really important in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And the thing to notice is it's God's choice. That takes us to the second part. Tr uh, seek true worship in God's chosen place. Look, look with me again at verses uh, 5 and 7. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices and so forth. And verse 7, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Just think for a moment about that emphasis on God's choice. I think one of the most striking features of Deuteronomy is Moses's repeated emphasis on God's sovereign choice. Uh, in chapter 7, we are reminded of how God chose the children of Israel to be his, his treasured possession because of his steadfast love and his covenant faithfulness to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was not because Moses was clear, remember, it was not because they were bigger or better or superior or smarter to any of these other nations that God chose to set his love upon them. Instead, the message was he set his love upon them because he chose to love them, because he chose to love them, because he chose to love them. That is as deep as it goes. Out of his perfect freedom from eternity, God chose to love us in his beloved. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we find this emphasis on God's sovereign choice. In fact, I think in the book of Deuteronomy, if I remember correctly, this, this verb is only uh, ever uh, ascribed to the Lord. He's the one choosing. According to Deuteronomy 7, God chose Israel to be his treasured possession. According to Deuteronomy 17, he chooses a king for his people. 
Uh, According to Deuteronomy 18, he chooses the Levitical priesthood to serve as ministers out of all the tribes of Israel. So God chooses a people. God chooses the king. God chooses the priesthood. But that is not all. Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 contains the first of 21 times in this book that Moses speaks of the place where God will choose to put his name. And if you study this language of choosing in Deuteronomy, there does seem to be this kind of narrowing that leads us to the point of the gospel, of the good news. Notice this place is not yet identified here in Deuteronomy. It will later be identified, of course, as, as, as Mount Zion and, and more specifically the temple in Jerusalem. But that hasn't happened yet as Israel stands on the edge of the promised land. At this point, this place is simply called the place where I will put my name. The place where he will dwell in the midst of his people. And this this place will become the center of absolutely everything. After all of the other high places are, are torn down, the central sanctuary will become the place of God's habitation, the place of God's presence, and the place of his special blessing, the destination of religious pilgrimages and sacrificial worship and community celebration and festivals where everyone is invited, including widows and orphans and sojourners and, and, uh, and servants. It will become the place of feasting, and festivals, and more. For this place is nothing less than the nexus between heaven and earth, the place where God and man meet. This is the place that Moses commands us to seek. And don't you want to go there? Don't you want to seek out that place? This is a delightful command. It is a sweet command. Seek that place. I don't know about you, but it's where I want to go. It's the place where we come before the Lord. We offer him our worship and we eat and rejoice in his presence. Moses says, seek that place. But what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Where can we go now that the temple is no more? Now that we no longer worship right on this mountain or that mountain, as Jesus explains in John chapter 4, where should we go to seek the place of God's presence and blessing where heaven and earth meet? Where is true worship authorized by God and acceptable to him, not left up to our own ideas and preferences. Where should we go? I don't think it's any accident that the very first words coming out of the mouth of Jesus in John's gospel, which, by the way, consistently present Jesus' body as the true and better temple. It is no accident that the very first words out of the word made flesh are the question, what are you seeking? What are you after? What do you you want? I mean, what what does Moses say? Seek the place where God will cause his name to dwell. And Jesus asks these disciples, 
What are you seeking? What do you want? John wants us to see that Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is the center of everything. He is the true temple, and he is the one upon whom God has placed his name, a name that is above every name. He is the the place, as it were, where heaven and earth meet. Jesus says to Nathaniel, who famously asked that question, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, see, this is the good news. Although he is the center of absolutely everything, Jesus has chosen to extend his presence and his blessing to nobodies from nowhere. That's, that's us, isn't it? We live at Johnstown. And he's met, he's met us. He, he has offered to us his presence and his blessing. The presence and blessing of God incarnate has come. And this is the place that we are invited to worship. Where we are invited to bring our offerings and our sacrifices of praise. Where we are invited to feast at the Lord's table. It is the place where we are invited to rejoice and celebrate before the face of God. No matter who we are, no matter our social status, we all come as one. Jesus is the place where God extends his blessing to his people. (coughs) Excuse me, Moses says, seek the place where God has put his name. That is the command given to us. So what are you seeking? See, Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, above every name that is named, Paul says. And so we are to come to him. We are to come to him by faith. He is the place where we meet with God. He is the true temple in which the fullness of God bodily dwells. He is God's chosen place to meet with man, to fellowship with us. (coughs) This passage, you see, it's not only about removing false worship from our midst, but about the character of true worship. And what I've been going on about for the last few minutes is we have to recognize it is Christ-centered through and through. But there's more to learn from this passage. And I want to briefly highlight some things. Because another thing we need to realize, and and boy does the church need to recover this idea today. True worship does not take its cues from the world. Israel was not to go into the land of Canaan and look at what the Canaanites were doing and say, well, that looks good. Uh, That appeals to my desires. I think we'll worship on the high places. And (coughs) yeah, cultic sex sounds pretty good. So let's go with that. No, God said, All of that, get rid of it. It's out. You will not worship the way that they do. Worship according to my word. The worship, true worship, is directed by God. So after talking about the false worship of Canaan in verse 4, Moses says, you shall not worship the Lord your God that way. And, And lest we think then that that means that the worship of the Lord is going to be this this really dull affair don't miss what we are invited into in this passage 
We're going to see more of this as we work our way through Deuteronomy. But God's people are invited into the presence of the Lord. And the people are invited to bring their offerings and sacrifices and tithes and and make their vows. And we're going to look at some of those as we continue on in Deuteronomy. But in verse 7, Israel is told to eat before the Lord and rejoice. That's where this is all going. Come, meet with God, worship him, offer your sacrifices and tithes, and eat before the Lord and rejoice in his presence. Now, the emphasis on eating and rejoicing in the worship of the Lord, it is, I can't overstate its importance. In in the Bible, eating together was a ritual act of fellowship and communion and friendship that usually came at the, you know, as the kind of culminating event of a covenant-making ceremony. And so unlike pagan worship at that time where the food was brought into a temple as a kind of offering given to God, you see the difference here in Israel. The Israelites were to bring food into the presence of the Lord, and it was for the worshipers. And it was something that was to prompt them to bless the Lord for his abundant provision and his gifts to them. You see, this is an invitation. This is what Israelite worship was really about. It was an invitation to be guests. Let me see, scratch that word. To be children at the banqueting table of the king. Right? Many people today... Think about Israelite worship as this kind of boring, repetitive ritual you know, performed by the priests while everybody else stood by <coughs> passively. But the picture Moses paints is certainly radically different. Now that's not to say that the priests did not serve on behalf of the people and regularly perform ritual acts. But here worship is presented as the people going into the presence of the Lord to worship to eat, to feast, and to rejoice. And so the mood of worship we see in Deuteronomy 12 is, is, uh, is not only reverential, but joyful. And another thing to notice is that this was a communal event. I think this needs to be emphasized in our, in our day of individualism. You know, Israelites did not, could not, Worship like this on their own. True worship is communal, not not private. Of course, there's a place for us to to worship the Lord and experience communion with him. But when we gather for corporate worship like we have done this morning, we gather to bring collective praise. And the emphasis in Deuteronomy 12 is nobody is left out. Nobody's left out. Everybody in the community was part of the worshiping and rejoicing. You see that in verse 7 and in verse 12? Uh, You and your household, you and your sons and your daughters, your servants and the Levite within your towns. And this is, frankly, very different. (laughs) Very different than a lot of church services today, which, for my part, I think are sadly segregated along the lines of, of race, of age, or even you know, more uh, trivially, musical taste, right? But in ancient Israel, worship was all of the people of God 
coming into the presence of God to eat and rejoice. And so Deuteronomy 12 underscores what true worship looks like. It is inevitably serious because we are coming into the presence of the Holy One, of God Almighty. But at the same time, it's festal. It's, it's filled with rejoicing. There is feasting before the face of God. I, I wonder, as we listen to that description of true worship, friends, if that sounds strange to us. Right? How do you personally think about worship? Right? What comes to mind when you hear the word worship? Are you tempted to view it as a kind of dull, humdrum affair? Very frankly, that bland vision of worship needs to be torn down and, and replaced by God's own description of his people entering his presence with joy to worship and to feast together. So here we have a description of, of true worship. It is coming by God's invitation into his presence and in the language of the Psalms, giving him his due. And just like Israel, we come by way of sacrifice, not by way of burnt offerings, but by way of the once for all sacrifice of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we come with thanksgiving, we come with praise, we come with rejoicing. And where does that worship culminate? Where does it lead us? It leads the church to a table. It leads the church to a meal set before us in the presence of the Lord where we feast on heavenly provision. This is why the Lord's table is a part of Christian worship because it is where we share a meal before the Lord to celebrate what he has already done and as we anticipate the great messianic banquet when we will be given full and final rest in the presence of the Lord. And so what is the message of Deuteronomy 12 for us? I'm going to wrap up. Root out idolatry and seek the place where God has chosen to put his name. And that means, friends, that we are to seek Jesus. We are to seek the true temple who has been given the name that is above every Name And as Jesus promised, wherever two or three gather together in his name, there he is in their midst. He is with us right now. How awesome is this place if we have the eyes of faith to see it? How awesome is the Lord Jesus who is pleased to dwell with nobodies like us? He is our praise he is our joy. So let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for uh, this passage and what it teaches us about idolatry and the hard lessons that we need to hear regarding that. And we also thank you for the rich lessons it has to teach us about true worship. Would you please write your law upon our hearts that we might walk in your ways through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.